Okay, welcome to Future Left Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Adam, and uh, here's always with Casey. Casey, how you doing? I have COVID. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, that's that's a my identity now. Start. Yeah, no, um, yeah, I guess uh, we did have a bit of, uh, I guess, uh, a few different kinds of encounters yeah. with uh, pandem- the pandemic recently. But you're feeling better, right, buddy? Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling good. Feeling good. Lung capacity's almost a hundred percent now. So great. We're happy to hear that. Um, we do have a special guest on with us. Uh, to we're going to be talking today about uh, a great many things, I think, uh, including uh, some, you know, what everyone's hoping for, vaccines and such, and and frankly, how uh, uh, maybe the pharmaceutical industry shouldn't be run by a bunch of uh, profiteers, uh, maybe. Uh, but here to help us talk through that is uh, an editor uh, at Jacobin Magazine, author of the new book from Haymarket called A People's Guide to Capitalism, An Introduction to Marxist Economics, uh, Hadass Tier. Hadass, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I there's a lot of different places we could start, but one I just want to start from a place of sympathy. So I imagine that you were you had a plan to write this book, uh, which I think very successful. I should say um, in very clear language is a, a really good place for people to start uh, tackling different uh, concepts within Marxism. Um, but you have this idea to, to write this book. And I'd love to know about that. But uh, but then as you're writing this book, I imagine maybe even talking with your editor and sending them some drafts, uh, probably one of the biggest crises, uh, certainly of my lifetime, uh, maybe uh, like, you know, uh, when I actually die of my life, you know, I'll look back and like, yeah, this is the one, right? But um, uh, but <laughs> that got darker than I intended it. But what I'm <laughs> Good trying job, to ask, Adam. That was wild. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm rusty. We took a week off. No, yeah. but uh, uh, what I wanted to ask is like, I imagine that the coronavirus pandemic and the just god awful response. What was it like trying to write, frankly, any book at that particular moment? But this book in particular, I imagine, was quite difficult. Well, I had written the book before this crisis uh, mm. befell us, um, which was both um, a good thing and a bad thing, I guess, in a sense, because what happened was the book was already done and literally about to go to the printer to be printed when um, when the pandemic struck and the economic fallout uh, followed quickly thereafter. Um, and basically, I talked to the publisher and we were like, okay, well, we have to, we have to readjust. Um, and so we basically stopped literally the, the printer from, uh, the, the book from going to the printer so that I could, um, as quickly as possible, try to scramble to add, um, there's like a classic stop the presses. Type yes, exactly. It was, yeah, yeah. it was that classic. Did you get to yell, stop the presses? <laughs> I yelled it as, as loud as I could, Good. um, over email. Sure. Um, So, so yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, in, in a certain way, it's the perfect time for a book about capitalism to come out Mm -hmm. because capitalism is exposed itself in every possible way at this moment. And many people are trying to figure out how do you understand what's happening? And, um, you know, I, in terms of, trying to talk about the current crisis in the book and kind of squeezing that in at the last minute uh, in the introduction and in the forward afterwards, you know, it was, 
it was challenging both mm-hmm. for the reasons that you said it was challenging to do anything during the pandemic, yeah. but also, you know, it, it was right at the very start where there was a lot of speculation about what might happen. Um, and, you know, it was kind of too, too early to say a lot definitively, but impossible to not have to talk about it at all. So, um, right, yeah. so I did my best to, to try to do that. But I, 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 my hope is that the, the book overall gives enough of a framework and an outline for understanding capitalism that it gives people the context within which to understand what is uh, what it is that we're going through right now. And like, I guess I wanted to ask you like what, you know, having written this book, and uh, and now going through this crisis, because I, I feel like, um, you know, I, I feel like I've been on the left for a, a large part of my life, but I, I haven't always been uh, as wise as I am now, as stupid as that sounds. But I feel like I, my my, you know, what I think what I thought about capitalism before I was a bartender changed when I worked, you know, as a bartender. And then when, you know, when I had an experience like unionizing a workplace, my thinking about capitalism changed. And certainly this year, my, my thoughts uh, and uh, about capitalism have changed and kind of my understandings of it. Certain things have been clarified in different ways. But over the past year, have, have things, um, has something become clearer in your mind about the system we live in or um, new kinds of thinking you have about politics and capitalism uh, in the just in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think that the 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 most obvious point, probably to a lot of people going through this similar experience, is that no matter how long you've been on the left or a socialist or a Marxist, and I've been a socialist and a Marxist for um, basically my entire adult life at this point, over 20 years. Um, And as much as you kind of understand in theory how cruel the system is, um, it's pretty stunning to see literally the extent to which they just do not give a shit about our lives. And it's something that, you know, we all kind of understand at different levels and in different ways, not just theoretically, but through our experiences, obviously. Um, But the extent of it, you know, that they are literally willing to let hundreds of thousands of people die uh, without, I don't know, losing sleep over it um, is, is stunning. Um, And, you know, that all the ways that, um, we've been set up for this and all the things that, you know, socialists and people on the left have been complaining about for a long time, you know, defunding healthcare and the hospital systems and, um, you know, the consequences of agribusiness. I mean, lots of things that people have been talking about for a long time, just, you know, coming home to roost um, and coming to fruition in like the most cruel possible way. Well, me and Adam come from, you know, conservative working class Texas families. And what's been heartbreaking during all this is that my family, you know, who are at the bottom of the socioeconomic, or not, you know, at the bottom, but at the lower end of the socioeconomic food chain, you'll hear them making arguments, lines that they're that they're fed by capital, things like, boy, you know, we can't you know, just keep locking everything down. It's going to hurt the economy. It's going to hurt the country. 
when literally they have everything to lose by that philosophy. And you hear them making it so earnestly, despite not, I, I can't imagine fully understanding what what it means. And, you know, when they hear, you know, Texas Governor Greg Abbott say, you know, there's worse things than dying, as he said at the beginning of this, when talking about, you know, how um, older people who are more at risk, they want us getting back to work. That's what, that's what he said. They would gladly give give their life to get to, to you know, get this country. They're the greatest generation. You know, it's that level of indoctrination is so heartbreaking, especially when it comes from people so close to you who have so much to lose. Yeah. I mean, I think a really big part of the problem is, is that nobody or not nobody, but not the two mainstream parties for sure. Um, and no, nobody really enough in mainstream discussion at all has posed enough of an alternative to that. Yeah. You know, so, you've had the Republicans go hard on that line oh, yeah. and that they're just trying to get people's life back to normal and they're trying to, you know, get people back to work and et cetera. And then you have the Democrats saying, you know, believe science and wear masks. And that's, and, you know, that's not enough. That's really an adequate <laughs> answer. Um, you need to be able to say, no, we're the party of stay home to be safe and we will pay you. You, you yes, know, that's yeah. a very important part of the equation. People need to be paid to stay home. Otherwise, you know, that's really a, an impossible decision to make. It's And it becomes counterposed as a jobs versus health scenario yeah. um, it's, instead it's of a, like, yeah. It, it's been hilarious hearing the argument about paying people to stay home and the cap, the two capitalist parties that we have have really <clears throat> excuse me showed their true colors by their argument that oh well if we pay people to stay home they're not gonna what incentive is there to work which translates of course to if we don't have a desperate workforce our right. you know coercive uh, system is going to break down exactly it exposes the whole way that the system works is that you need to you need to coerce people to go to work and right. actually you know from a public health perspective we don't want people to have incentive to work right now, actually. That's the whole point. We yes. want people to be able to Absolutely. stay home safely. And, and for that, they need to be paid. Um, and, you know, the Democrats could have been the party that went hard on this. You know, Biden on the campaign trail could have been the candidate that said, we need people to get $2,000 stimulus checks every month until this pandemic is over. We Regularly. need to, you know, increase... The un, you know, and extend the unemployment benefits. Uh, we need to be the party for universal health care because guess what? Millions of people uh, are losing their health care because they've lost their job, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They could have been the party that went in hard on this. And instead, you know, they were the party that um, lectures people to, to wear masks. And that's that's not going to cut it. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. I know that in your book, uh, you met you discussed um i believe in the introduction where you're talking about the coronavirus about capitalism and how it has a tendency to be like quite irrational even though it has its own internal logic but because you know i like it's one of those things obviously i despise capitalism but it seems like if you were interested in like you know long-term profit and stability surely it would occur to you that like icing put, putting the economy on ice for a few months to get mm -hmm. through this 
with a robust stimulus, that that would be like the rational way to get, you know, quote, quote, get back to work, right? right. To get back to normal. But like that was, that seems, you know, in hindsight that it was unthinkable to the party that was in charge. It was uh, unthinkable largely to the opposition party. Uh, I guess, like, am I missing something? Isn't is isn't that the rational way to view this, or like even from like within a capitalist framework, to you know just have everyone stay home, even for the sake of global capitalism? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think part of it is okay. So there were countries, there are countries that have done it better than uh, we're doing it in the U.S. Obviously, so it's not impossible. Um, I, I think that it's not a coincidence that the U.S. is the number one, you know, capitalist superpower and is also at the top of the list in terms of COVID uh, cases and COVID deaths, that when you're the epicenter of global capitalism, you're also the epicenter of a global pandemic, that those things are not coincidental, that U.S. capitalism is, you know, particularly unhinged, and um, that's how it's gotten to the top. <laughs> um, you know, certainly in the United States, it's been, you know, Trump is obviously the worst possible person that you would want in charge during a pandemic. Um, but, you know, here in New York City, where I live, where we have a so-called liberal mayor and a so-called liberal governor, you know, yet yeah, have they been less insane than Trump? Sure, that's a very low bar. Um, yeah. But they were both Cuomo and de Blasio insistent on opening, first not closing things down until yeah. later than they should have, and then opening things up before they should have. And, you and know... It was a huge fight there with the schools, right? And yeah, the exactly. Teachers. It was It was a huge fight to close the schools, and then um, it was a big fight leading up to the fall, um, you know, de Blasio insisted, you know, by hook or by crook, he's going to reopen these schools um, against the wishes of teachers and actually m most parents. Um, but the reality is, is that business needs to function. And in order for businesses to function, you need working parents yep. to be able to send their kids to school so that they can go back to work. And that is the calculation, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, um, and certainly like states rely on revenue in order to have state budgets. Um, and so they, they are insistent that things get back to business. Now, in New York in particular, this is true around the country, but it's probably m more true in New York than anywhere else. Um, there's plenty of money if they would just tax the rich, but that's not right. on the agenda. Um, and, and, and the reason that it's not on the agenda is, is what I was starting with, which is that the U.S. has gotten to the, to the top of the global totem pole uh, precisely because um, that kind of thing is not on the agenda, that corporate profitability um, has been pushed through and rammed through uh, for decades at the expense of uh, the American working class. And that's that's kind of how we've gotten here. Yeah. Well, and how could that ever be on the top of our agenda when the people making the legislation are the same people who would be taxed heavily? Right, right. I exactly. mean, it's, um, you know, one thing that I loved about the book, you know, I'm, it, for, this is just my, my personality. I sort of follow this in my sort of academic life as well. But like, I like, 
I like getting to the, the origins, the roots of of things. And and in your book, the you know the the first chapter is about the sort of origins of capital or or, or your capitalism. Uh, I just wanted to ask you what what do you think are the most far reaching lessons that can be gleaned by looking into the origins of, of of capitalism? If we're looking, you know, with an eye to find the 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 weaknesses, you know, a plan of attack, you know, how does can can we find the uh, the downfall of capitalism in its origins? Well, the the first maybe most basic point to say is that the fact that capitalism has an origin means that it can have an end. Right. Yeah, you said that in the book. I love that. Right. Right. Exactly. It's not an intrinsic human quality. Um, it's not built into right. our DNA, which so much of the way that um, kind of mainstream capitalist ideology and our education system and everything promotes this idea that we're just kind of naturally like this. Um, sure. And that's that's just not true, you know, and for the vast majority of human history, human beings lived in hunter-gatherer societies, which, you know, had varying, you know, different uh, social organiz- or, uh, organizations. Um, they were much more, by and large, egalitarian than not. And there's, you know, really some interesting anthropology, um, anthropological studies done uh, about that. And that's beyond, you know, the Absolutely. purview of my book. But but the point being, and I, I think I use this example in the book, that if you were to compress the entire, the whole of human history into one day, into like a 24-hour period, the amount of time that capitalism has existed is literally the last three minutes of a 24-hour period. Um, it's a right. very small fraction of human history. And so that's the first point to say, that there is nothing just naturally human about us uh, developing this particular means of social organization. Um, and right. what I try to lay out in kind of broad brushstrokes, obviously there's a lot more to be said about it, and there's many books that have been written about this topic in particular. Um, and I just try to lay out like a quick framework. Um, but what I, what I try to lay out in, in, in my book is just to say that there, are, there were particular historical circumstances that led, um, led us to a, the capitalist form of, uh, of social organization. And that um, it's useful to look at what did capitalism need in order to develop. Um, that you needed to, de- you needed to have a population that cannot sustain itself you know, that can't independently sustain itself. You had to rip out, you know, basically masses of people from the land that they lived on uh, in order to make people employable, um, employable in the sense not only that they could work, but employable in the sense that they had to work. Um, And that really is a prerequisite for capitalism. Um, so that's that's one thing to say. And the other thing to say is that um, capitalism, as it began to develop, you know, basically went through that process quite violently and also at the same time, um, you know, separated the masses of people from the land, both physically, but also mm-hmm. separated basically our connections to the land. 
and as capitalism developed, uh, the planet and our natural resources became basically just inputs into a product- productive um, process that human labor and natural resources uh, are basically just seen as economic inputs, uh, not into you know, precious life form that needs to be sustained and cared for. Um, so, you know, there's, there's other things that you can draw from that, but I think one of the important things to, to draw from it is that the current conditions that we live under where, um, you know, we have to, the vast majority of people have to work for a wage, um, and that, that all of that is circumstantial circumscribed by that basic historical condition that you have to understand that being the context that we we don't have a choice of whether to work or not work um, because we have to work in order to live Um, and that is sort of the starting point for for how we uh, you know how we approach uh, the situation that we're in I also love the fact that another big point that you made was that the sort of meritocracy myth of of capitalism is just that it's, it's a myth that the people who are successful, there's a very clear line of success coming from previous success that there's, there's very little. um, I always think it's funny. People talk about living capitalism, you know, you can have these rags to riches stories. And I always think that's extremely uncommon. That's why these stories are worth telling when they happen Mm -hmm. because they're extraordinary. Um, yeah. and you sort of draw that, that the, the line of early capitalism, the, the, the people who were empowered, people who controlled capital were people who already had power and wealth. Right. Exactly. Uh, I think that, I think that's completely right. And, and the, and the mythology of capitalism is that, you know, people have either worked hard or had genius ideas mm-hmm. or what have you to miraculously wind up with the vast majority of wealth on the planet. Yeah. And uh, that just makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't absolutely. make sense historically. It doesn't make sense theoretically. Like it's just, um, yeah, it's completely non nonsensical. But it seems so because it's part of the, you know, it's part of literally part of the air that mythos is part of the air that we're born into. It seems so self-evident. But, but yeah. when you start, when you start taking it apart, it's so obviously in, incorrect. But sorry, I'll, I'll let us move on from that. I'm just I'm, I'm so enthralled by the conversation of the origins of cap- capitalism. Well, the, the funny thing about like the, um, you know, the rags to riches and mythology like that is, is um, especially when you're looking at like the tech industry. I feel like so many of these platforms are just recreating old forms of labor arrangements yeah. and or even, um, you know, even like goods and services. Like I think Netflix or one of the, I think, I think it's Netflix. They're, they're interested in creating basically like a regular schedule that you can tune into. They're basically <laughs> like now that they've innovated and disrupted, you know, all of the, 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 the media industry, I suppose. Uh, now they're, they're going to recreate the television station, right? <laughs> they're like, creating network like television. Or, how, how brilliant, how genius though, Adam, like who could right. have yeah. that idea? <laughs> Or, or Uber, which is basically just the same taxi service, but with, like, no unions and fewer, like... Yeah, it's uh, just a more coercive version of the taxi system. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, it's the, the genius of disruption. Um, but uh, I guess I, let's... I, I think we can move to the pharmaceutical industry, because I think that there's a lot of... There's a lot... 
in just reading your article from uh, this past uh, summer that was in, in these times about nationalizing the pharmaceutical industry. I think there's a lot of different concepts that uh, you kind of um, you touch on in your book, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, just a little bit of context. So on Future Left, we often play a game called Control-Alt-Delete with a given platform or what have you. So uh, control meaning like public ownership, alt meaning worker ownership, and delete meaning this thing should be abolished. So for example, uh, control for mass transit, alt for Tesla motors, and uh, delete for Papa John's, for oh. instance. Like, well, we, uh, and uh, you know, there's, there's normally some I like the pizza stuff. from Papa John's, Adam. Well, you're wrong. You're wrong for that. But uh, Das, you may not no, know I, this, but in Texas we get real pizza. Uh, oh yeah. Not like in New York with the. <laughs> we get Uh-oh. we get uh, we've got Domino's, Pizza Hut, soon. and Papa John's. I mean, that's an interesting thing about because you know being from Texas, but moving to like the East Coast and and further north is that I, I didn't realize how dominated life in Texas and, and you know, the, the city of Dallas anyway, was dominated by chains until yeah. I, like, moved to, like, a different city and, like, mm-hmm. realized that it, not everything had to be Pizza Hut or Papa John's or Domino's. Like, it was, that was a very bizarre thing that I realized about, like, um, I don't know, the market in, in Dallas. Not just for pizza, but it's a good example. Um, but, uh, no, so... I just all right. So obviously, you wrote this piece in in these times about nationalizing the pharmaceutical industry, um, but it's interesting because the, thinking through the article to me, it it kind of brought up a lot of uh, sacred cows uh, of capitalism. A lot of the concepts that you discuss in your book, like for instance, um, uh, I had the same experience when uh, I like years ago thinking about. Uh, the video games industry, for instance, I, I hadn't really thought of all the different kinds of labor that go into like me being able to play a video game. But it's the same thing with like um, with pharmaceuticals. I know you mentioned that there's a lot of manufacturing of these uh, drugs in like Egypt and India and Pakistan, um, often for very little cost. But that late that labor doesn't translate at all into what we in the United States, we, we have the privilege of experiencing just the highest cost for drugs that I'm aware of. There might be other countries where you pay even more for drugs. I don't know. Uh, if there are, I haven't heard of them. But um, Martin Schraley is the case that opened my eyes to this. Like that whole thing. I, I still today that that blows my mind. Like how. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to get angry if I start talking about Martin Schraley. Yeah. Go ahead. You should. He's just so out front with it, like smirking and. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Adam. Well, well, just, just, just saying that, like in this particular industry, the kind of wide gap between the, uh, you know, the the labor value of a given commodity and what we what we end up what people end up paying for. Because I know that when I was in uh, high school, I was told that you have a line with an S next to it and then a line with a D, and when they intersect, that's where price happens. Mm. But that seems to be uh, a, a bit of a lie <laughs> at this point in my life, that that is how price works at all. You're going to say, Co- um, you're going to sit there and tell me Coach Knox lied to me about that? Uh, yeah, unfortunately he did. Damn it. Um, uh, so... Hadass, when, when we're talking about the pharmaceutical industry, it, reading this article, it really sounded like a dizzying process, how these people come up with what they're actually going to charge others, what, what they're going to charge consumers. Right. 
Well, it's a, it is a dizzying process, and it, it makes very little sense, certainly from a human perspective. But I think that first and foremost, the thing that you have to understand about the pharmaceutical industry is that they operate on the basis of kind of creating a controlled monopoly. And that's really what the patent system is about, right? That um, a pharmaceutical company, by putting a patent down on a particular kind of um, science, you know, method, um, means that they control who gets to produce it. And so the whole, you know, theoretical ideology of capitalism and the free market where you have everyone producing and whoever can produce it most efficiently are the people that win in the market. You know, that's complete bullshit um, in general. It's not really how it works, but it's certainly not the case how it works in the pharmaceutical industry because they they create uh, their own kind of fiefdoms and monopolies so that, um, you know, we're in this insane situation right now, right, where you have companies like Pfizer and Moderna who have gotten ahead of the pack in terms of the race for uh, creating effective vaccines for COVID. And there's a whole backstory there about, you know, how they got there and how much uh, public money was invested into that uh, research to make that possible. But now they are the owners. They're the sole proprietors of these vaccines that they've uh, created and the rest and the planet is at their whim of who gets to have it because instead of saying, okay, wow, look what we found, now let's get that information out to every possible uh, manufacturer of vaccines around the globe so that we can mass produce this and mass produce it fast because that is what is needed to actually end a pandemic. Um, we have this, you know, uh, bidding war between the different countries where the richest countries get to buy up uh, the world's stock of vaccines and uh, and the rest of the world is being left to suffer. So uh, I don't know if I got a little bit off track with what you were asking, but the, I was, the, my main point is that the most important element, I think, of the pharmaceutical industry is that they, through the use of, of patents, um, are able to create monopolies and fix prices to whatever they deem, you know, whatever they they feel they can get away with, um, and that's yeah. where the whole kind of cost effectiveness, um, you know, analysis comes into play. Is not how much did it cost to produce this, but how much can I get away with uh, charging for it? So that's interesting because, like, I I've always been really confused by. Uh, like the any kind of justification for intellectual property um not not any I, like i think that when you talk about artists and things like that maybe I, I can i can understand some different aspects of it but like um especially when today we're talking about um increasingly digitized commodities that like literally ones and zeros that can be replicated infinite infinity times right the only limit is like hard drive storage or something if you want to put it that way but like it's still you know you're still charging what feels like in in many cases an arbitrary number there's that's just based issue. on i'm sorry there's not a supply issue is what your point is yeah it's definitely not a supply issue it's basically set around what we think people will pay to get a given item 
Um, did did Marks? I mean, what is intellectual property? Is that something that like is that uh, something that's a little bit more new? I I don't know how old of a concept intellectual property is, but is there? Did Marx have anything to say about this? I'm I'm not aware. Yeah, that's a good question, and I don't think so. But I think you know he certainly had plenty to say about monopolies and about the way that um, you know the 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 way that supply and demand can be distorted in order to to impact the prices of things. Um, but yeah, we it's I think a relatively new phenomena in the in in the way that it is currently structured for sure i I don't think it's a completely new phenomena to capitalism obviously but um you know there there was this move uh in the 90s um at at the world trade organization um for i forget what trip stands for trade rights and I don't know some 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 combination of the words trades and rights and intellectual property um but basically um an you know an an international treaty uh that all countries uh that participate in the world trade organization are um obliged to um which says that you know every country has to respect um these patents from from other countries um, and that's, uh, that has just increased the, the level of, um, of control that, uh, certainly pharmaceutical companies have, um, in, in determining the ways that the ways and the amount that, uh, that pharmaceutical products can be produced. And, and what's insane about it is, you know, it's, it's insane for the reason that you were just saying, you know, so much of this stuff could just be uh, repeated and so much is digitized, etc. Um, it's also just insane on the human level, right? You know, it's one thing to say uh, you could make, you know, a, a, a crazy amount of money producing, whether it's video games or, or something else, and it's not to minimize those things as... as um, you know, important to people's lives. But, you know, when you're talking about literally life or death situations, the fact that it is completely and perfectly legal to, you know, to price fix um, yeah. when to it comes to... hold people medically to, hostage. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely um, out, uh, barbaric. You know, this is supposed to be the most advanced that, 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 that human society has produced and it's and it's absolutely not <laughs> well i i was talking to someone the other day they were like you don't have people like jonas salk anymore who are sort of these uh humanitarian um you know inventors of uh you know pharmaceutical products who you know uh, i think he what did he charge like a dollar for the for the for the patent for mm-hmm. it to be just and the reason is is pharmaceutical companies like you don't have you know, it's rare that you have individuals, you know, coming up, you know, individual, you know, uh, you know, gentlemen, quote unquote, uh, you know, <laughs> pardon the gendered terms, these gentlemen scientists uh, coming up with, uh, you know, these these things on their own. Now you have teams of people so that the, you know, the uh, the work is spread amongst uh, different people. So it can't be pinned down to one person. So it can be more easily commodified and claimed by these companies who have the scientists 
uh, working in their name. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not even about scientists. Scientists don't create these anymore. The pharmaceutical companies do. That's how we see it. Right. And the, and the reality is, is that it, it's, you know, we have, we have scientists to thank um, for where we're at who have been working around the clock. Right. And, um, and, and, and scientists are, you know, in the position of having to, like, beg for resources, right. uh, both for the research and then, you know, to find, to team up with a pharmaceutical company that um, will take what they've already done uh, and and um, you know set up the the productive capacity yeah. uh, to make it happen. But you know the there's been a you know a, a pretty impressive level of uh, scientific sharing a- across the globe um, to get us to where we are right now. Sure. Um, all the, w- where we are is happening despite of the you know, the free market and the race, uh, the, you know, to, to get a vaccine, um, et cetera. All the things that we're, we're told is the ingenuity of capitalism are the yeah. things that are actually hindering the process and, and, the, and, and what's happened despite of the quote unquote ingenuity of capitalism um, is, is why we are at where we're at. I mean, if you think about, you know, both Moderna and Pfizer depend on very similar uh, scientific have a very similar scientific basis like RNA technology and I'm not a mm-hmm. you know um, you know scientist myself and I'm not gonna I can't I can't speak to exactly how it works I have a very rough sense of it um, but you know from what I understand that is it's completely new as I understand it right it, there's it, never been a vaccine that uses RNA uh, that that type of uh, vaccination right. Right. It's, it's new, that, but it's, um, the research that's gone into it um, has started, I can't remember when exactly, but before the pandemic. Um, sure. and, um, and now they're seeing, and it's a really big breakthrough um, yeah. to, you know, to, that, that it can, to see that it can work because that will mean really good things for other um, vaccines and, and diseases as well. Um, but so this research has been ongoing and it's been on the basis of, you know, government-funded research, et cetera. Now we have uh, Pfizer's version needs to be, you know, frozen in like ultra-freezing. I don't remember yeah. the exact temperature that it needs to be kept at, but it's, um, you know, very inhibitive for many places around the globe that don't have that kind of technology. Right. Um, Moderna has some means of doing it without having be you know in ultra freezing uh temperatures there is no reason in the world that moderna should not share that information with pfizer i mean like they they're using very similar technology and scientific knowledge i i'm guessing that to transfer that kind of a thing would be relatively easy but the reason that that's not going to happen is you know what on earth is the would compel moderna um, financially to, to, to do that. And that's, and that's really the, um, insanity of capitalism. Like why do we have to incentivize scientific research, knowledge development of life-saving, um, of life-saving medicines and, 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 and technology? It's, it's absolutely just 
insane, you know? Well, you, you touched yeah. on this earlier as part of this, you know, fallacy of capitalism that, you know, people say, oh, well, this, this one company, they deserve all the credit. They shouldn't have to share it because they had the genius breakthrough uh, idea when really in, 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 the sci- in science, everything is built upon research mm-hmm. that comes before. There's no, no, nothing happens in a vacuum. You know, when, when Jack Kilby invented the integrated circuit, everybody was like, oh, my God, he's such a genius. No, he just took he just had the idea of taking components that existed and make the wire a board that they all go on instead of having wires. Like literally everything was there. And even right. if you make that argument, people will still say, yeah, but he had the genius. Like people are so people's main uh you know desire is to make it about this one person this one moment and i think Mm -hmm. it's partially because the sublimated idea that that could be me yeah there's some there's some um psychosis that's being manipulated by by capitalism um for sure i mean you know the the this could be said about all of the research that has gone into development of vaccines um some in particular, I mean, the Moderna vaccine, most activists uh, who have been organizing around these kind of issues around um, access to medicine, um, who've done the research around um, how these vaccines have been developed, don't even want to call it the Moderna vaccine. They say it's the yeah. NIH vaccine because pretty much, you know, all of the technology and, and um and research that's gone into developing it has come straight out of the NIH. So, um, you know, this idea of, yeah, some kind of genius that therefore deserves to be rewarded by um, billions of dollars. I mean, it's also just like insane on the level of even if, let's say, it was some individual genius that came up with a vaccine, like in what like sick and twisted society do they need to be rewarded with billions of dollars rather right. than actually seeing people healed in a pandemic end you know i mean or 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 if you think about it in, in less kind of life or death terms although there are life and death um, um consequences as well but like you know something like amazon like on what planet, even if it was about like this brilliant idea that Jeff Bezos had, which is not true, but let's say that that was true, that means that he deserves literally, you know, times billions more than the logistics workers that actually make this shit happen. Um, yeah. You know, that get no, we're, we're not allowed to door. talk about what Jeff Bezos actually deserves on the air. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, I mean, it is one of those things like particularly like for me and Casey came across, we discussed it on the podcast. There was like an article that was like, Jeff Bezos is secret. He gets eight hours of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was also about his secret philosophy. And like, you'll see articles like, Oh, what does Jeff Bezos eat for breakfast? And it's like all of these things they give as like the origins of his wealth are all things that are part of the lifestyle of a wealthy person already. It's yeah. it's like I don't know, it's so brazenly like putting the cart before the horse, so to speak. Right. The the secret to his success is that people rub his feet 24/7 and give him some <laughs> yeah. time to breathe and think, you know. It's the people yeah. fanning him with palm leaves that may, that help him have these ideas. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, it is funny when you think about, like, anyone that thinks Jeff Bezos is a genius, because his idea was like, what if we sold things, but online? <laughs> I always so refer to him as, whenever people mention Amazon, I'm like, that bookstore? <laughs> Just kind of like to take him down. But did we ever get to, like, 
control alt delete this this thing oh i guess we can talk about that uh i think i think delete is out because we should all we probably all agree that there should be yeah pharmaceutical people making these making pharmaceuticals and i think it's fair to say that like um i know you're writing uh, you when you wrote about nationalizing pharmaceutical the pharmaceutical industry um, you're, you know, it, it's part of a, a specific discourse. I'm, I'm not, I'm sure you're not opposed to like, you know, some, some level of worker control and, and, and things like that. But like, when you think about, you know, what a pharmaceutical system might look like under socialism, um, like, how do you, what do you think about the, you know, the kind of democratic publicly owned, um, s- stakeholder versus the workers that work there, like, how, like, because this is kind of a, an enduring question when we think about this is like, you know, even when we talk about like schools, like obviously there's so many stakeholders when it comes to a school. You have parents, you have the students, you have the, the teachers and and, you know, local governments and things like that. If you if you wanted to really think about how to democratize uh, the education system. But when you're thinking about the pharmaceutical industry and, you, you know, I, I, I'm sure you know more about the kind of supply chain and the labor that goes into it. Like, how do you th- do you have a way of thinking through, uh, you know, um, what worker control looks like versus public control? And I don't know. Do, do you have a way of thinking through um, questions like that? Because I guess it's just something we always end up kind of mm-hmm. bickering and thinking through about a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, I would say, first of all, that um, thinking through the way that a democratically planned economy would work, I -hmm. think is a a complicated question, uh, because we live in a very complex society, right? So I'm I'm absolutely in favor of worker control, um, you know, but I think that the question becomes, how do you link up how do you connect up worker control and, you know, worker control of the workplace and what gets produced and, and, and how, where the people that are on the floor and that, not, that, that doesn't just mean the people literally producing it, but that includes like the scientists and the, um, all, all the different levels um, having input into how things are produced um, and, and, and what, and, you know, certainly if we gave um, scientists and immunologists and, and so on um, control rather than a profit-driven uh, pharmaceutical company, we would have very different results um, in terms of the people that are you know, creating, that are manufacturing products, have a lot more knowledge about how to do that in the safest way possible, um, et cetera. So those things are all absolutely necessary they need to be connected to a, you know, a broader kind of democratically, um, you know, democratically planned system where the, the needs of the global population, um, are accounted for. And I think that, you know, is a, is a more complicated question of how do you link those two things? Um, I think that it's, it's obvious that, you know, when you take out the profit motive, that immediately you have a much more uh, clear shot at doing it right. Um, because then what you're motivated by rather than profit is uh, what's needed. 
Um, but then, you know, you have to figure out during a pandemic, it's obvious what the priorities of, of the system are, you know, and uh, pouring all the resources that we can into that. Um, but then there's, you know, there's just tons of, um, there's tons of needs that, you know, n- no one particular workplace or sector has all the knowledge of, you know, um, you know, there's, there's diseases that are extremely rare, um, that, you know, right now, the way that it works in the pharmaceutical industry is that, you know, one particular company will pick up this kind of rare disease and put a patent on it and drive the prices way up because they don't have any competitor. Um, and that's what makes it worth it for them to, uh, produce something on a relatively small scale is that they have they they they, they drive prices way up. Um, so in a in a not profit driven system, um, you know you would need to think through all the different implications of uh, what's what's needed and how do you go about organizing that and that needs to be done I think um, on on a global scale. Absolutely. Casey, did you have any uh, other questions on your end? No, I, th- I think we got to the. Uh, I think we got more than control alt delete. Like I, th- I think we fleshed it out a lot more than you know. Normally, our game just puts like a, a single word response on it, which it often deserves a lot more than. So, I, th- I think uh, I'm satisfied on that end. Yeah, well, I I think like before we close, like. Um, I don't know. I've been like you, you mentioned earlier that like one of the biggest lessons of the pandemic for you has been like just the, the scale of the cruelty of this system. And I guess that's what I've been thinking about today. Um, Cause I, I learned today that uh, the doctors have like basically told um, a family friend of my family. He's on a, he's, he has COVID and he's told today that basically he's not going to make it. Uh, he, I mean, to be clear, he wasn't told this. His family was told this, and uh, you know that's that's sad in and of itself. But taking a, another step from it, like I know that um, most likely he contracted the virus because someone in his family um, uh, works at Walmart, and uh, it, you know is is working in those conditions, and this person is um, uh, beyond retirement age. So like there's there so like it's one of those things that like you know someone that like uh, in any like just society shouldn't have to work in general to survive is like working there's layers during a pandemic layers. there's layers yeah and, there's layers and layers of capitalist injustice under this yeah yeah, yeah. and you know um, just like you know and I. I don't know. I guess I was just pissed off today at like just the cruelty and like the, you know, just, just kind of like, like, honestly, like the best way to put it is I was just hating America today. And I'm not trying to be like one of those like ultra left podcast guys that are like, ah, the CIA did not 11 Pearl Harbor was praxis. No, I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to do. But like, but like, I was just, I, I don't know. It's been like a difficult day. I mean, even though like me and this person weren't super close it's it was i was just thinking about like the conditions that like this one person that i know who um unfortunately is is going to die of this virus 
and um and like how you know at this point this is is, is this is just one person and we're talking about this on a scale of like 300,000 people i think we're getting closer and closer to as days go by and um i don't know like you said casey just the layers of like bullshit that yeah. surrounded you know this one incident and i'm sure every single person that's that's been that's been killed or impacted by oh there's got to be hundreds plague. there's got to be hundreds of thousands of stories like this Absolutely. yeah but you know, you know hadas the thing that i want that like really gets me though is that like sometimes i'm like you know the trump administration the this is all about incompetence right and in a way that feels like an excuse mm-hmm. like is that like you know because at a certain point like this isn't just like oh i'm i'm just not good at my job that's why 300,000 people are dead mm-hmm. this is this is like it seems to be the result of numerous calculated choices that all have an internal logic if not one that makes sense to you or i or anyone with any ounce of decency but i don't know i feel like i've just been rambling i forget where i was going with that other than just the cruelty of this particular system i don't know yeah it's it's cruel and it's devastating and um and it is completely irrational but it is um it is run by also competent stewards as well. I mean, it's not yeah. just the Trumps of the world. It's like I mentioned earlier, you know, I live in New York. Andrew Cuomo has been hailed as some kind of a liberal hero in comparison to Trump. And he's That's certainly so a, a competent, a smarter, more competent version um, of Trump. And, um, mm. you know, that in some ways is just as scary and in some cases scarier. I mean, in, in New York City, it's over one out of 400 residents have died of COVID. I mean, that is a just unbelievable number. And yeah. it has been very competent and cold calculations that have led us here. I mean, there's the, um, you know, Cuomo managed to waive liability for nursing homes um, during the pandemic so that, you know, they got away with just awful, awful conditions that let uh, the most vulnerable in our society die. Um, you know, there's decades of neglig- of purposeful, again, very competent negligence um, that have destroyed our public hospital system. I mean, in New York, uh, in New York City alone, I'm trying to remember the number of hospitals that have public hospitals that have closed over the, the, the last number of years. It's like something like 12. Um, you know, there was a story that came out in the New York Times a, a few months ago about the discrepancies in uh, fatality rate, COVID fatality rates, uh, depending on which hospital you went to. So the hospitals in Manhattan that are privately run and well endowed, you know, had three times the survival rates as the public hospitals in the boroughs where poor people and people of color and working class people live. Uh, So, you know, if you're Donald Trump and you contract COVID, then you're given, you know, the most deluxe treatment that some people estimate might've cost over a million dollars to treat him. Uh, But if you're, you know, just another regular person uh, that lives here in Brooklyn where I do, um, you know, good luck to you. And, um, and that's really just the horror 
of the system that that we live that we live under. I mean, I guess um, we're 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 way past time, but just just to say that. Um, and, I really I appreciate wanna, I talking with you. And Hadass, I don't want it to sound like like I I don't have more to say. The the issue is I talked to Adam before this. I had so much that I wanted to talk to you after after reading the book, reading the article. Mm. That you know we're going to have to have you back on at some point to to talk about things in more in more detail. I mean that's that much is clear. Awesome, I would I would love to. But I, I yeah, for our listeners, I really do recommend this book. I know that like. Um, I have, uh, I, because I, I, I can be, I can tell the truth right now. At the end of the episode, come on. <laughs> but I, I know I've read like Capital Volume One, a little bit of Capital Volume Two, um, right. and I've tried. I've like I remember a few years ago, my New Year's resolution was to read Capital like th- that year, like Volume One, Two, and Three. It didn't happen, Hadass. <laughs> but I will say for the audience, like I know it can be very intimidating to start that that kind of uh, uh, uphill hike. But I really think your book uh, does a service for a lot of leftists that are looking to like understand the basics of Marxism, which is, I think, where uh, we ought to all be coming from. Yeah. Um, and uh, but so um, just I, I really appreciate your book and really do recommend it to our, our, uh, our listeners. We were, t- we were talking um, about how important your book is and what an important place it fills in the in the sort of leftist, uh, you know, book market i hate to say that word but like you, you know what i mean it fills it fills a very important space thank you yeah. I, I really appreciate that i'm, I'm glad to, i'm glad to make a contribution you're a genius and you should be paid billions of dollars <laughs> <laughs> you're a singular genius hadas it was great talking with you um and uh especially uh, as late as it is we should definitely let you go yeah um but um uh, just to say thanks again for joining us on Future Left. And for our listeners, uh, we'll see you next time. I'm Adam. And I'm Casey. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.